0: If another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. If I stand on the first step, all I want for Christmas is three extra inches of height. (laughs) Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we are thankful. We're thankful even for the things we don't know we have. At Christmas, we know that it's difficult to see all of the blessings when there is so much want. But Father, we pray that as we open your word for a moment, and as we continue to sing these songs, may you give us eyes to see, may you give us minds to know, and hearts to feel. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. By the way, the title of the sermon this morning is Choose Forgiveness Over Resentment. And some of you might be thinking, we came to church on the day after Christmas to hear a sermon about the birth of Jesus and what that means for us. And we are, but we're going to do it a little bit different. Because I get this sense that people already know the story of Jesus' birth. We already know the story. We've seen the nativity scenes. And so we kind of tune out what the preacher is going to say because we've already heard it hundreds of times. So what we've done this year is we decided to not tell the story so much as to tell about what Jesus actually came and did. And what we learned from the life of Jesus. And so I want to talk this morning about one of the gifts that God gives us and it's forgiveness. And it's not just the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of salvation, but Jesus gives us the gift to know how to forgive others, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So, I want to start with this with this meme, it's M-E-M-E, a meme, Pastor Brett taught us about that before he went to seminary, um, but a meme is basically a picture with words on it, so... Go figure. And here, some of you might have already heard this, but I'm going to do it anyway. So there's a conversation between a son and a father. The son says, Dad, I want to get married. Father, first tell me you're sorry. The son says, For what? The father says, Say sorry. Then the son says, But for what? What did I do? The father says, Just say sorry. The son says, But what have I done wrong? The father says, say sorry. The son says, why? The father says, say sorry. The son says, please just tell me why? The father said, say sorry. The son responds, okay, dad, I'm sorry. To which the father responds, there, you finished your training. When you learn to say sorry for no reason at all, then you're ready to get married. Women, why do you make us do that? There'll be a sermon on that. (laughs) It's really hard to say sorry, isn't it? When you're wrong, it's a little bit easier to say sorry, but it's still really hard because saying sorry is difficult, not just saying it, but actually meaning it. But what's even harder than saying sorry is when you've been the one that has been hurt, What sometimes is harder than saying sorry is actually forgiving the person who hurt you. See, this has been a long year. Some of you have experienced more pain than you even thought you would ever experience. Some of you have been betrayed, have been hurt, have been lied to. Some of you have been treated very badly. And so you know the pain Of what it feels like to be hurt but as we come to the end of the year this is one of those times that I believe God just kind of gives us and he asks us to just step back and pause and to forgive the people that have hurt you because the truth is is the only person who is being hurt by you not forgiving someone is really yourself And some of you may be saying, but you don't know what they did to me. You don't know how horrible it was. And the truth is, maybe I don't know. But you see, what happens and what the Bible teaches us about forgiveness is that when you hold on to that thing that you're not wanting to let go of, what it does is it keeps you in the past. It keeps you locked into whenever that event happened, and it keeps you from being able to fully experience the fullness and the presence of God in the present moment. Not forgiving people keeps you living in the past, and we know it's difficult to forgive, especially if the offense was extremely painful. But what we're going to find out in just a moment is that forgiveness is essential It is mandatory. It is a requirement of those of you who call yourselves Christians. It's not optional. You see, the worldly way of doing things, the way the world teaches us to do, is not so much to forgive, but to get revenge or to get vengeance or to pay back. That's the way of the world, to hold on to things and to have grudges. But the way of Jesus and the way we are taught to follow Jesus is to be able to let go of that and forgive. And so this morning, that's what we want to look at. Now, this morning, we have a special, like, surprise, I'm going to have Brett come on up, and one of the nice things about having Brett, he's back in town from seminary, and so we want to see what he's learned. (laughs) We want to see what he's learned, and so uh, Brett and I are are going to be um, team teaching this morning, and so I'm going to let him have a few
1: minutes now. And I'm back on California time. Pastor texted me at 9.30 last night. Hey, man, you want to preach tomorrow? <laughs> so the, That's always nice. No, I'm just kidding. We had it planned. But um, So as the, the scripture reading says, uh, we're talking about Peter. And Peter was, was one of Jesus' closest disciples. He was in that elite group of two or three that whenever Jesus went somewhere and he was looking for a small group of people, Peter was on that list. He was outspoken, he was outgoing, he was everything that a follower of Christ should be, and he was a lot of things that a follower of Christ shouldn't be as well. And that's why we resonate so much with Peter, because we, we recognize his high moments, but ooh, do we recognize the moments where he messes up as well, because we've been there and we've done that. And so Peter, in Matthew chapter 18, is present for one of Jesus' most powerful sermons, And the sermon is on forgiveness. And you'll read the first 11 or 12 verses. And then Peter, right there in verse 17, kind of interjects. And he says, you know what? I've heard enough of these, Jesus, that I think I know where you're going. Uh, Kind of like an anxious student or pupil in a classroom that's anxious to impress their teacher. He says, Jesus, I've got this one. Check it out. So Jesus allows him to, to have his moment, which we'll soon find is a counterfeit gospel at best, and Peter speaks up and says, all right, here's how it goes. Somebody close to me, maybe a family member, a loved one, a spouse, maybe a stranger, somebody hurts me, somebody does something wrong, somebody sins against me. Check it out, Jesus, I'm going to forgive them. Okay, or we're, we're good so far. And then he says, and Jesus, if he does it again, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to forgive him. And then, I'll save the best part for last. Up until seven times, if he does this to me, I'm going to forgive him again. But after seven, I think I'm justified to kind of wash my hands of this person because they've taken advantage of my forgiveness. They've, they've kind of, they've, they've gone too far, and, and at that point, the, the door is closed. I, I can no longer relate to them as an individual because they've really taken advantage of my forgiveness And so Jesus, with these compassionate eyes, says, Peter, seven times is not enough. In fact, 70 times, seven times, if that same individual does that same stubborn sin against you, if you're going to follow me, you are still compelled to forgive them. You are still compelled to give them the benefit of the doubt and still compelled to extend that forgiveness. And here's why. Because we have all reached our eighth time with God. We've all reached our 10th time. We've all reached our 490th time where we've let God down. And we continue to find that God's door is not closed. That God's grace goes far enough to reach into the darkest moments of our lives. Into the 491th time that we mess up, God is there. And Jesus says, Peter, it's the least that you can do, if you're a follower of me, it's the least that you can do to extend the undeserved grace that you've received to the ones around you. That is the very least that you owe to me as my follower. And Peter learned lessons the hard way, and and we'll find very quickly, as the story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection progresses, that Peter really hasn't learned the lesson just yet. But he's going to. Well, fast forward the story. It's the last night that Jesus has on earth before his crucifixion. And he is inside the courts being tried. And Peter, nervous, walking around with anxiety, has his head down, not exactly sure what to do. And then somebody spots him. And they say, hey, I think I recognize you. You're, you're one of them. You're one of the disciples. You're, you're a follower of Christ, aren't you? And Peter says... Sorry, you, you, you have the wrong guy. There's no way that that's me. I understand the misunderstanding. We have the same haircut, but it's not me. And so he continues walking. He's like, that was close. Because he's ultimately not, not man enough or not a follower enough to, to take what Jesus is taking. So he continues to walk around in the shadows until a woman sees him and says, Hey, weren't you at that wedding feast in Cana where Jesus turned water into wine? I swear you were right by his side. And Peter says, no, 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 the wrong guy. And for the second time, he denies Christ. And then later, early into the morning hours, he gets spotted again and the same thing happens. You have to be a follower of Jesus. And for the third time, Peter commits this unbelievable sin of denying the Savior that he has professed this allegiance to for all of Jesus' ministry. Three times he does this. And we'll fast forward again. Jesus has died. He's resurrected. And one of the few conversations that the Gospel of John records for us is one that occurs between Peter and Jesus. It's in John chapter 21, and Jesus intentionally finds the disciples and asks to speak to Peter alone. And Peter is like, oh my goodness. Like, if Jesus is anything like I am, I'm pretty sure this is done. We're done. Like, he's where he's going to cut the tie, and, and I'm no longer going to be a disciple. I've, I've done the unthinkable. I've denied him. He's everything that I knew he was, and I still denied him. And, and Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, Wow, well, yes, Lord, I, I do. I love you. And Jesus says, no, Peter, do you love me? And, and Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. And then Jesus again, a third time, says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I do. Three times Peter sinned against Jesus and three times Jesus offered reconciliation. We serve a God that is radical about grace. Regardless of how many times we fall and make the same mistake, we find that Jesus is there with open arms. You see, Jesus doesn't keep a notebook with tallies of our sins. That's what we do with other people. Jesus has the eraser and he invites us to use it as well. And if we have a God, if we serve a God that is constantly there to pick us up every single time we fall, every single time that we fall, then who are we to allow anybody else that we interact with to fall from grace?
0: And as we would continue the story in Matthew chapter 18, the very next story that Jesus gives to give more evidence and more proof to why we must continue to forgive We invite you to open your Bibles to page 695, the Bible that's in front of you. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, 23. Therefore, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Jesus is making a declaration of what the kingdom of heaven will be like. Oftentimes when we hear the kingdom of heaven, we think of what heaven itself will be like or what eternity will be like. But remembered, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven or when he says the kingdom of God, what Jesus is talking about isn't just sometime in the future when we will all live in eternity with God, but the kingdom of heaven is a reality that is present here in this world. Yes, things are bad, and yes, evil exists in this world. That is obvious. But as Christians, we must be the countercultural force that says we will not live by the way of evil and vengeance and injustice, but we will live the way of Jesus, and we will live the way of the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is when you make Jesus the Lord of your life, which means that instead of vengeance, you choose forgiveness. Instead of hate, you choose love. Instead of disharmony, you choose peace. Instead of hopelessness, you choose hope. To be a follower of Jesus, to be a Christian, isn't just to say that you're a part of the club that gets to go to heaven, but it's the part of the people. You must be a part of the people that become a solution in your place and in your time here on earth. You know, people say that sometimes people are so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. We don't want to be those kinds of Christians. And in fact, the Bible teaches that we must not be those kinds of Christians. So Jesus, in the story that he is about to tell, he is saying, if you call yourself a follower of who I am, if you're listening to what I'm saying, and so today I would say if you take what the scriptures say, if you take it as truth, then this is what it must be like. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wants to settle accounts with his servants. As the king began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. That's like millions of dollars. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything everything. The servant's master took pity on him, and he canceled the debt and let him go. Another Bible translation says that the king forgave this man's debt. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands and say, well, how many of us have debt? But a lot of us do. How nice would it feel for you to just have someone forgive all of your debt? We know what that means, right? There would be a lot of, like, you know, smiles in this place if all of us were debt-free. But you see, the Bible writers use these financial terms because everybody understands money. You either don't have enough, or you have too much, or you have just enough, or you want more, but everyone understands money. So the Bible writers, and Jesus specifically knows that, you see, this can be substituted for all of the sins that you have committed. God forgives them because God lays his life down for you. God offers forgiveness. Now, there may be people in your life that do not want to forgive you, and that's understandable. We live in this life, but God does forgive. Verse 28, but when the servant, this is the servant who was forgiven his debt, When that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That's like a few dollars, that's what this says. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him. Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, I canceled all your debt because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant? just as i had on you shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant in anger the master turned turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that is owed and this is what jesus says in verse 35 if you have your own bible underline it circle it memorize it this is how your heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brothers or sisters This is not a contrary message to whether God will forgive us or not. The point that Jesus is making here is that just as Jesus forgives you, you are commanded to forgive all who have betrayed you and hurt you and done horrible things to you. That is the way of Jesus. Now, the question is, if we forgive must we then reconcile with that other person? The truth is that forgiveness doesn't mean that then you will reconcile, because oftentimes you have to forgive people that aren't even apologizing. So forgiveness isn't, okay, all, all, everything is wiped away, now we can continue to go on and everything will be perfect. No, because if you've been hurt by someone, and sometimes you are hurt extremely bad, sometimes that relationship can't be repaired and can't be mended. But you still must forgive, because to truly understand the grace that God has given to you is to extend the arm of forgiveness to those who have hurt you and betrayed you. You see, we call ourselves Christians not just to say that we are a part of an exclusive club. We call ourselves Christians because what we're actually saying is we want to be reflectors of what Jesus is like. We want to shine like Jesus shines, and we want to live the way Jesus lived. On the way to the cross, Jesus says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they are doing. Forgive them on the way to his death. Instead of having a message for his mom or his brothers or for whoever else, Jesus' message is, forgive, forgive, forgive them. We forgive not because someone deserves it. We don't forgive someone because they ask for our, or because they apologize. We don't forgive because someone begs us for the, for the forgiveness. We forgive because God forgave you. And you must, you have to, to be a follower of Jesus, you must extend that same grace to everyone around you. Is that easy? Did anyone ever say that being a follower of Jesus was easy? No. It's like the hardest thing to do. But that's why. It is the spirit of God that flows through you and in you and fills you that will give you the power to forgive. And some of you are saying, well, but I still don't want to forgive. So I would challenge you, and if you're our guest, um, we hope you come back after I say what I'm about to say. (laughs) If you're saying, I still don't want to forgive, I would challenge you and invite you to draw closer to Jesus. Because if your heart still wants to hold on to the pain and the vengeance and the betrayal and you don't want to forgive, I would say that that's an indicator of your relationship with God. That's an indicator of how much you have truly surrendered. And if you are still holding on to that pain and that betrayal, then I have something to tell you. You have not surrendered to Christ. I know, right? We don't want to come to church to have the preacher preach at us and and get mad at us and yell at us. But I'm not getting mad at you because you did something wrong. I get upset because if you don't forgive, you are going to miss out on the life that God has for you. It's nothing to do with me. If you don't forgive, the abundant life that Jesus promises is going to be hard for you to find because Jesus says, yeah, I came that you might have life and that you might have the most abundant life. But a part of that abundant life is that you must die to your selfish desires, to your hateful emotions, to your pain, to your vengeance. You must die to all of that because when you do, then you will begin to live for what is truly important. I have come that they may have life and have it. More abundantly, Brett. Do you have anything else to add?
1: Okay. In Ephesians four thirty-two, it says, "Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you." And it's interesting because we can all we can all resonate with this idea that we're supposed to reflect Christ, that we're supposed to reflect God. As a pastor said, we we can all relate to that because we've been taught that our entire lives. But here's where that gets Interesting as a church is that sometimes we, we are operating as a church body with conflicting understandings of who God is. And when we have conflicting understandings of who God is, that trickles down into the way that we treat one another, into the way that we live our lives. I once had a professor tell me that whatever you think about, what, the first thing that you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. The first thing that you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And as that statement settled in, I thought about our church, our our Seventh-day Adventist denomination that I have so much love and passion for. And I thought about the, the varying portraits of God that we have even in this church. And I thought of, uh, of the way that I was raised and the church leaders that I was raised by that the first thing that they thought about when they thought about God was a God of vengeance, a God that was looking for justice at any, at any cause, a God that, that, that was looking for, for some sort of divine judgment. And, and you can tell by the way that they lived their lives because they were constantly pointing fingers. They were the ones that, that looked at you and, and judged you. They were the ones that looked at you and pointed out your wrongs, hoping that you wouldn't look at them because it kept them safe. And I want to tell you today that that is not the gospel. Jesus came to show us who God was. And guess what Jesus defines himself as? Love. Love. When the Bible talks about God, it uses one word, a synonym for who he is, for everything that he is, and it uses the word love. And sometimes it's hard for us to believe. It's too good to be true. And if you have trouble, trouble believing that, I want you to read one of the gospels when you get home all the way through, and you'll see again and again that everything that Jesus is, is entirely and only love. Love. Let me give you a prime example. We'll go back to John chapter 8. Jesus is is talking to his disciples, talking to a large crowd that has gathered, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, interrupt and interject and drag this woman who was caught in adultery before Jesus. And they say, Jesus, what are you going to do? We know that you're the one who says that you have the ability to judge. If you're the son of God, show us justice, Jesus. Jesus. Show us, show us your righteousness. Show us what you're going to do to this woman who, is, who has defiled your law. And so Jesus, in disbelief, looks at all of this woman's accusers, and he bends down and begins to write in the dirt. And whatever he wrote, the Bible is not clear. We can imagine whatever he wrote made these Pharisees begin to be introspective. And recognize that they had no room to be pointing fingers. And one by one, they walk away. And it's only this woman and Jesus. And this woman is still on the floor, trembling before the God, the creator of the universe, awaiting her fate. And Jesus bends down and looks her in the eyes. And he, he asks her, where are the people who condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin No more. Imagine if that's the mentality and the mindset that we embodied as a church. Imagine if, when we saw someone with a conflicting lifestyle or with a lifestyle of sin, something that we disagreed with, imagine instead of shutting our doors to them, instead of saying that you have to reach this certain standard of righteousness before you're invited in, imagine if we brought them to the feet of Jesus. Imagine if we said, this is how I've benefited from grace and I want to share that with you. Because it's not, it's not rules that are transformative. It's not a list of do's and don'ts that are going to change your heart. That is the grace of God alone. It is only the grace of God, the transformational grace of God, that can turn a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. It is only that grace that is given by God that can bring someone to life. And we as a church family have the ability to pass on that life-changing grace. So the question for all of us today is now that we've experienced the grace of God, what are we doing with it? Amen.
0: Merry Christmas. And I'll finish with this verse in Colossians. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive As the Lord forgave you. And above all, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Heavenly Father, as we hear these words that challenge us, because God, let's be honest, it's easier for us to hold on to the pain. I pray that your Spirit would come down in a double portion on every single person in this building. So that you would give us the courage and the strength and the grace to forgive. So that in the forgiveness, we can see a glimpse of who you are. Teach us, mold us, shape us. So that when the world sees us, they will see an image of who you are. That more people would confess and bow down before you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
2: When Jesus was born, a new star shone in the sky. And from afar, three wise men, kings, astronomers, recognized that they must travel afar to bring him gifts. Gifts to this newborn king. When they came, TO JERUSALEM THEY has TO SEE THE ONE, THE ONE BORN, THE KING. FOR HIS STAR HAD BEEN SHINING TO SHOW THEM THE WAY, AND NOW THEY MUST FOLLOW TO THE PLACE WHERE HE LAY. They followed his star that holy night. They followed his star, the one with the heavenly heaven. They traveled so far to see the Holy Child. They followed His star all the way to Bethlehem to worship Him. The way to Bethlehem, they followed that star. It led them each step of the way. Oh, when the star stood above them, their traveling was not done. So they fell on their knees. To worship God's Son They followed His star That holy night They followed His star The one with the heavenly Heavenly high, they traveled so far to see the Holy Child. They followed His star all the way to Bethlehem. Followed His star. the way to Bethlehem, followed his star all the way to Bethlehem.
0: As we continue to participate and partake in in the flow and the teachings of scripture, one of the things I was reminded of this morning is that um, the only gifts in the Bible that were ever given on the day of Jesus' birth were given to who? To Jesus.